How will we power our future? Can we create a healthy and clean economy? Climate One at the Commonwealth Club is at the forefront of the global debate about energy, economy, and the environment. Bringing together the brightest and most provocative leaders of our time, Climate One is the place where big ideas get heard. With thoughtful and insightful discussions on policy, business, science, and culture, Climate One founder Greg Dalton gets to the heart of the matter. It's our future. It's time to come together. Welcome to Climate One at the Commonwealth Club. I'm Greg Dalton. Many office buildings and homes in the United States are energy hogs. In part, that's because homeowners don't buy a house primarily based on energy usage. Contractors building homes don't foot the utility bill, and commercial landlords pass on energy costs to their tenants. Furthermore, electricity prices in this country are regulated to be low and stable. But the era of climate disruption is promoting a new generation of energy entrepreneurs to rethink the way buildings are constructed and how they use power. The market for energy efficiency is growing, and analysts at McKinsey and Company say that the built environment is one of the most promising and economic areas for reducing carbon pollution. In the next hour, we'll discuss innovation and entrepreneurialism in the building sector with our live audience at the Commonwealth Club and three executives trying to disrupt business as usual in the construction industry. Gary Dillabo is managing partner at the Wesley Group and a former eBay executive. Anne Hand is CEO of Project Frog and a former executive at British Petroleum. And Kevin Surace, did I get? Surace, long Surace, uh, founder of Cirrus Energy and chairman of Zeta Communities. Please welcome them to Climate One. Um, welcome all. And let's begin with you. How did you get from an oil company to building modular construction? I'm still trying to figure it out. <laughs> um, I, I started um, at 21 in um, large kind of oil and gas companies. And uh, there they really groom you to be a generalist, so you do a lot of different jobs. And at times I, I ran petrol stations. I built them, um, worked in chemicals. Um, and at the end, I was running all of our global brands and marketings. And I was also the natural aggregator inside the company for the sustainability agenda. And this is kind of around the 2006-07 time frame under a wonderful leader we had, um, Lord Brown, who was our CEO, who really was the vision behind Beyond Petroleum and as well the push to um, put uh, material investment into alternative energy. And um, with that, one of the things I needed to look at was the built environment. And we were spending so much time thinking about solar and wind and biofuels, and it was actually after I went through a bit of a period of feeling shameful for how little attention we were spending thinking about 25,000 retail sites, refineries, pipelines, trucks, all those other assets, heavy infrastructure assets and the facilities attached to them that we were disregarding. So I did a little bit of fun on my own, had some skunk works going inside the company and um, just got behind the cause of the built environment. I'm not an architect, uh, so I say that with a big bucket of humility on my head that it's been quite a learning curve for me, but I think I've sat on the other side as a buyer of buildings and so I hope I bring that lens. And we'll learn more about Project Frog in a minute. Gary DeLebeau, uh eBay to, you're doing investing, but uh, building's not sexy in Silicon Valley. I mean, I mean, what, you know, you used to work at eBay, famous <coughs> entrepreneurial company, and now you're investing in buildings. Is that, is that boring? <laughs> <laughs> uh, not, not for me. Um, you know, my, my background, I was actually a civil engineer in school, and a, uh, wanted to find a way to get a, uh, into the, the civil engineering field, and Really couldn't uh, find any opportunity. I ended up being in a number of different uh, startups, internet startups, and the last one being eBay. 
I was there for a number of years and uh, was mainly doing a um, strategic partnerships. Um, but uh, as I was getting ready to leave, our CEO said, you know, we need to develop an environmental strategy. It was something I was uh, convicted about personally, and, and so I got the opportunity to work for her for a few years doing that. It became the most meaningful job I'd ever had. Uh, to really look at the construction of new buildings and data centers, and you start to recognize the loads that they create. It's, it's, it's actually quite concerning when, once you start to get into the details of it. Uh, so uh, I really enjoyed it. And uh, then Steve Wesley is a friend of mine, and he said, hey, Gary, you want to sit on the other side of the table and start to invest in some of these technologies? And uh, you know, I kind of jumped at that opportunity. But I found it, it's very difficult. You know, they, we'll talk more about it today, but, but this is a tough space. It's an important space, and you need some conviction and fortitude. And I think... That's what we're, we're hoping we'll see here over the next, you know, four or five years as this technology starts to mature because there's some very exciting things, I think, on the horizon for us all. So if I heard you, the environmental program at eBay began under Meg Whitman. <coughs> Correct. Right, who then campaigned against AB32. That's a whole other program. <laughs> um, uh, Kevin, let's talk about how you got from uh, communications and software companies into building materials and energy. Well, it's, uh, uh, there, there's many ways to address uh, uh, that question. Uh, to some extent, it was uh, by accident, and a, as a lot of uh, things are. Um, I think if you look at uh, when, when we started uh, Sears Materials, uh, which became Sears Energy, uh, back in uh, 2001, 2002, to the end of 2002, it was very hard for anyone to say, I know the built environment is the problem. We're going to get people would have said, you're crazy. Um, uh, frankly, a friend of mine had a polymer company, handed it to me, and said, can you do something with this? And within a few years, we realized that all the play in material science and, in fact, in other technologies would be in the built environment. And um, for those, I think much of this audience already knows, the built environment worldwide uh, is responsible for about 40% of uh, overall CO2, 52% if you include the making of the materials that go into the built environment, which is the largest sector of industrial manufacturing simply because of their weight. Buildings weigh a lot. And, and so, you know, sort of 50% is, is a pretty big play. Uh, there's a lot to be done, and, and everything that all of us are doing are just starting to scratch the surface. At Sirius, uh, several years ago, we introduced software that manages buildings uh, like this where we could save 10 or 15%. So I was back in the software business, which I had been in uh, before. Mm-hmm. And as, as Gary will tell you, software is certainly involved in a lot of his investments. There's technology involved in everything that we're doing here, and uh, and it's getting more and, uh, and more so. So, uh, um, you know, I think what we need, uh, and I'm sure we'll touch on this, is, uh, is better policy worldwide. And um, you know, and in better a better investment environment that includes uh, exit strategies for the investors, because the public markets have not been kind uh, too much to to companies in the clean tech arena, and that's a that's that's an overall challenge to the entire space. And on the impact of housing, you said I saw on uh, your TED talk that it takes eight the equivalent of eight thousand gallons of gas to build a house. That's like true. driving around the world six times. I mean, okay. think about it. your house is six thousand. The building it is the equivalent of six thousand gallons. Is that right? That, that's a, the the energy from the trucks going back and forth and the people showing up, as well as the materials themselves, is the equivalent of about eight thousand gallons of gas. And people don't think about that in building a house. So when you step back, you go, how do I? How do I rethink the materials we use? How do we use more recycled materials? How do we reduce the energy usage over the life of the house? Um, the, the, the energy usage in a house over its life far exceeds the 8,000 gallons of gas, except as we've been bringing that down and bringing that down as you approach net zero energy homes, which 
uh, we build at Zeta, and you you build uh, not homes, but you build uh, other other structures that are net zero energy or close to net zero energy. Then all of a sudden, that 8,000 gallons is the big nut because because you're running your 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 building on virtually no energy going forward. Some other statistics I want to get the others in here on on buildings that Americans are living in larger houses, fewer people with more air conditioning. So while we can talk about more efficient homes. Uh, they are bigger and there are fewer people in them. So is size the problem, Anne Hand? That, you know, we can say, oh, this is green. My, my 8,000 square foot house in, in Aspen is green, yeah. but. Well, we don't do residential for exactly that reason. <laughs> <laughs> um, I would say that, um, you know, just a, a commercial comparison, um, you know, a big tenet of, of Frog is, is that we deliver a bundled solution. We don't just deliver on envelope. We prefabricate all of the systems, the interior components as well. And that's, that's pretty important to us because if you, if you just prefabricate parts of it and with all best intentions spec the other stuff in, inevitably, like every other construction project, time and budget gets away from you and the best parts are value engineered out. And a big part of our value prop to our large customers is that we can guarantee a price per square foot, no change orders, a schedule, usually about 50% faster than traditional construction, and a very specific energy performance. As far as the changing landscape of, of size of buildings, one of our most important customers is Kaiser Permanente. And um, we've just been um, verbally awarded a very large project with them in SoCal. We've won one in, in Hawaii with them, another place where they're really thinking about energy. And the interesting twist is just in those few months period between those two projects, how they're already starting to think about not just the flexibility change of the space they need, but also as healthcare reform comes into play, um, the role of telepresence and the importance of actually reducing the number of visits people make even for basic wellness. So while you have a lot of uninsured coming into the system, you also are going to change the way people interact with their doctors. So we're having to design smaller buildings for them that are actually much more flexible than traditional flexibility means in the construction world. And let's talk about how you get those lower costs. Is that by... That has to come from somewhere. So you're yeah. squeezing labor on site. I mean, somebody yeah. has money would normally go to somebody. You're taking it. Was it the unions yeah. or... Uh, where's that money coming from that you're... Yeah, I mean, it, it's it's a great question we get asked a lot. We uh, we did a beautiful building at um, Hunter's Point, and because it was a low-bid design-build public job, we were um, had access afterwards to the bids we beat. And what's fascinating about when you do the analysis is, is on average, only 18% of the bid was materials. 30% was labor, and 38% was overhead and risk. And so if you just look at overhead and risk alone, the way that all of those stacked stakeholders and players, all the way down to the subcontractor layer, layer contingency you know, and risk on top of each other, that's just one way in a bundled solution. All those players will still participate in, in, in erecting a frog building, but the fact that we're able to control that bundled solution, strip out a lot of that really fat that, that doesn't need to be there in a building is, is an easy way right off the bat for us to be able to hit price points. I mean, the building that we're doing now in SoCal for Kaiser that I mentioned earlier, we're being their construction benchmark by $30 a square foot. That's not what they really deliver them for. That's what they want to. And on top of it, it's going to use 30% less energy than their traditional SoCal structure. Can I, can I sure. add real quickly to that? In the, in the modular space, um, uh, at Zeta, we build a modular primarily residential. Uh, <clears throat> but a very similar uh, finding is that, um, you know, we are collapsing all of those risks basically into a factory that is very controlled, 
highly controlled. So highly controlled design, highly controlled factory. Everything that goes into the, the product is highly controlled. And uh, it reduces the risk, reduces the time, reduces the cost. We're coming in, you know, 10 to 30% cheaper than, than, than site build. Uh, we're coming in 50% to 100% less energy than they would have used on an ongoing basis uh, uh, than site build. Um, we just finished a project at 38 Harriet, right down the street here in, in San Francisco. It's a multifamily project, 300 square feet per unit. So these are meant to be really tight little sort of studios, which are actually going to rent for an awful lot of money because of their location <laughs> here in San Francisco uh, of probably, you know, a couple grand a month or some crazy number for 300 square feet. They are gorgeous. I mean, they're beautiful, really tight, really well made. Couldn't have made it that way on site. And it, and it assembled on site in about two days, you know, with a crane putting it all together. And you can't tell that it was modular, but these modules were all designed in a factory to literally just screw together on site. It's absolutely amazing. So people have this image. I've been in some beautiful uh, modular homes as well in Lake Tahoe. People have this image of trailer parks, that sort of thing. This is a four-story building. It looks like a four-story building like any other four-story building would look. You cannot tell this was built in a factory. Gary Dillabo, where do you see some of the real promising areas for innovation in, in building? Anne says that it hasn't changed since Roman times. You know, where do you see uh, innovation opportunities? Well, you know, I think some innovations actually go back to Roman times. I think a lot of the ways that buildings have been built in the past were much smarter than they were mm-hmm. built today. Um, and a, I was just at a, a beautiful building uh, that was built in Los Altos by the Packard Foundation. And when you walk into that building, the materials, the natural light, the, the air from outside, it, it feels right as rain. And you go, I'd love to work in a facility like this. Uh, I then, later that day, had to go down to another building in, in uh, Silicon Valley where I was in the, the bowels of the building in a person's office, no access to natural light. You could tell the air, didn't, it, just, it just wasn't fresh air. And you go, how does this person work in this facility and be as productive as, as that person could be? So and what a, were they thinking when they built that place? Well, you know, it, it was low cost. I mean, when, when you look at the, the American landscape of construction over the last 45 years, it's all about low bid wins. And uh, there's lots of compromise when, when you go down that path. And unfortunately, uh, you know, when you look at the overall operating expenses, low cost up front doesn't equate to an efficient, good place to work and, and lower cost over time. So you know, a lot of very poor decisions have been made on the front end of some of these projects. But doesn't it cost more to be green? Isn't there a premium? You know, perception, I, I, consumer products, if you want green products, whether consumer products, lots of car, cars, there's a green I, premium. I think that's been true. Um, I think that's changing. And I, I think in any, any new kind of marketplace, when you, you see a, uh, you know, uh, things coming to scale and, and product, production costs coming down, that we're finally getting to these points where um, it's almost on parity uh, with existing or traditional construction processes or materials. I think we're very close. And, and my concern is that it feels like we're kind of running out of gas at a point in time when some of those, those things are really starting to change. You know, I'll give you one example. You know, LED lights are, uh, we These have a company. These lights are terrible. Don't look at those. Yeah, we, we not. <laughs> These are bad lights. Uh, but, you know, a great light is if you open up these curtains and you went outside, that's the kind of light we all want to work in. Now, LED lights, uh, our company sells these two-by-two two, uh, LED lights, two-foot-by-two-foot. And about three years ago, they sold for close to $400. Those lights will sell for in about 12 months closer to 125 to 150 So that, that that's nearing a price point of fluorescence. But the great thing is that's a digital platform now on your ceiling. 
And once you have the digital platform, you can actually start to change the color of the light throughout the course of the day. So when you walk into your office, it might feel like the morning time. And when you walk outside, you know, light changes all day long. And in your office place, that can change as well. Those are still relatively expensive to have some of that color shifting. But those are the kind of environments that I think we'll be able to create with some of these new technologies. And as the semiconductor industry has done for the computer marketplace, it's beginning to do that for the lighting sector. And that, that's when I talk about exciting things on the horizon. If we can just hold on and just have a little more fortitude, I think you'll see some great things like this start to come to scale. But I, I would add, I mean, one of the things that we've had to learn the hard way at Frog is, you know, we need to bring the, the greater industry with us. Um, you know, you talked about union. Most of our jobs are union jobs. I mean, we still need people to erect that set of, of parts on site. Um, and we've never had any material pushback from the unions because there's work to be done on the site for all the unions there. Um, we the know factories, the, the factories union? We, uh, yeah, I mean, we use we use distributed manufacturing, so we have large-scale um, suppliers like YKK and, and other companies that manufacture different parts that we've designed. Um, the parts arrive just in time on site. We think it's important that it's flat-pack construction. Not only does that make shipping more affordable and more energy efficient, but it also allows you to achieve kind of big ceiling heights, big flexible spaces, things that we think humans are more productive and thrive better in environments than the dimensions of, of the back of a semi-truck. Um, but I, I, why I say it's important, too, is what we've had to learn the hard way is that, um, you know, we, we need the architecture community to embrace us. We need to give enough flexibility in the kit so they can bring their craft and their art to the kit and help people feel they're getting a very distinctive building. Um, we've also had to really bring the construction and contractor trades with us to understand that how important their role is. There might be less scope to do on the job site, but our goal is to, to have more volume across multiple sites with them. But don't some of them see this as a threat, that you're taking some of their business away? Yeah, I mean, early on, for sure, I think tides turn when, you know, a couple things happen. I mean, you know, we've, we keep hearing round about different stats coming out of the industry, like 10 years, all commercial construction, um, 70% will be prefab. You know, if you've been sitting in this space a long time in construction, you start to feel that the wave is shifting. And then also, you know, you look at big customers like that we have like 7-Eleven or, or Kaiser, and you say, you know, if I'm sitting in the, the chair of a big CM firm, I'd rather do 10 jobs with those large firms or 20 or 50 and do them with Frog than win one at a time. And so I think for us, those strategic partnerships are, are vital. Um, but I think people just realize it is the right thing to do. So if they can figure out a way that it's a flexible enough solution with no trade-offs, um, I think that you can bring the, the industry along. Kevin Serace, will, will people pay a premium for green products? Or is it, well, you know, I'll, I'll just give you my opinion. I think, um, you know, there was a time in this country for the longest time, for hundreds of years, where the answer was no. And then there was a time, um, I think, after uh, roughly after Al Gore's movie, where the answer was yes. Um, and, and, you know, in speaking around the country, you'd see the psyche of the country was, give me more green stuff. I want it recycled. I want it uh, cradle to cradle. I want to save energy. I mean, there was this big push. And then there was the, you know, economic downfall called sort of 2008, so a couple of years into it. And, um, you know, the old adage of economic trumps all in, in elections and what people do in their lives is absolutely true. So, you know, you go to Detroit today and you start talking about green, you know, either you're talking about their wallet or they're going to throw something at you. Uh, because they're worried about putting food on their table. They're not worried about the energy usage in their building or anything else. 
Um, so I have seen the tide shift. I mean, that's just, just, uh, and I think all of us really in the business have moved away from even that as the leading indicator so, or, or, the, or the leading marketing message. So at Zeta, well, we make net zero energy properties and half, half you know, net less properties. Um, we now don't use that as the front. The, the front is, look, save 30% over any other way or 15% or 10% or 20% and do it in less than half the time than you would have any other way. By the way, for no additional charge, yeah. <laughs> you're probably going to meet yeah. the highest lead standards that you've ever seen. Yeah. It's the icing on the cake. I mean, when we were specking Kevin's windows into the Golden Gate Bridge 75th anniversary building, we don't sit, spend time with Golden Gate Park saying, see this line item? See this very lovely, you know, energy-efficient glazing? We give them a bundled answer. They All they get is a beautiful building. It's mean and energy spec. We've taken all of the complexity of the decision-making process out. I think that's the key. It's and very key in this modular yeah. uh, space. You know, a, a great example is the Empire State Building. Um, uh, the owner of the Empire State Building and, 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 his, and his wife are one of the larger uh, 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 donation, donors to the NRDC, and they're very, very big in the environmental Natural space. Natural Resources Defense Council. Yeah. Yes, yeah. So, so they're big environmentalists. Very okay. big environmentalists, and really, and, and, and yet when it came to doing his own building, um, he basically said, until someone can show me a three-year payback, I'm not going to do it. What I do in my personal life, because I personally feel this is one thing, but I'm not going to wreck my business by having no payback. <clears throat> they eventually uh, did look at 68 items in the Empire uh, uh, State Building and, and eventually choose eight uh, windows were the, one of the largest parts of that in that particular case. They already had dual-pane windows. This is very interesting. They already had dual-pane because some of you, of course, I see some of my architect friends in the audience, they know that dual-pane is not very energy-efficient, but most people think I've got dual-pane energy-efficient windows. <laughs> um, uh, that's a marketing uh, uh, thing, not, not actual results. And, and so he replaced his dual-pane windows in the entire building, which was over 6,000 windows and 26,000 panes of glass, with um, high R-value uh, glass systems from, um, from Cirrus Energy. And R-value is an indication of... Uh, resistance to heat flow. So the higher the number, the better. You know, R0 is an open hole in the wall. R1 is a single-pane window. Roughly R2 to R3 is dual-pane. And at Sirius, okay. we had product all the way out to R20, so you could do just crazy things. But the, but, but not that R20 would necessarily pay back very well, but R8, R9, R10, those numbers pay back in a lot of situations. Uh, the net result is, in the overall situation in the Empire State Building, they were replacing their chillers and a whole bunch of other things. And they could, if they put in these windows in the entire building, they could take out one entire chiller, which was worth $17.6 million, that no longer had to come back into the building. Well, that $17.6 million uh, gave them, depending on how you calculate it, either an instant payback or a better than three-year payback. But in either case, nobody was going to lose money on this. This was a good deal, and his rents went up. So they did very, very well. But he wouldn't do it until you saw at least a three-year payback in our software, we saw people that we really, I mean, most of the building owners said, if I can't get a one to one and a half year payback, in fact, in the same budget cycle, ideally one year payback, forget it, it's out. So this is the kind of marketplace that we all face today. Mm-hmm. And so it's very so help, difficult. Help me explain that, because building owners own buildings, especially if you're an institution, hospital, university, you own that building for its lifetime. Why do they need to get their money back in a year or two when their when their time frame is First of all, longer? the CapEx budget is different than the OpEx budget, right. and there are often two different people who deal with them, and sometimes okay. not even the same company who deals with it. Yeah. And sometimes it's the renters who are paying, you know, the OpEx, and the CapEx was paid by someone else. It's a very difficult, yeah. very difficult field. 
Yeah, they're, they're even inside a corporation that funds its own buildings. It's still two separate economics, as, as Kevin says. And even though they, they do consider the operating P&L, they've already made a decision on the set of assumptions they use for different regions. So trying to get into the bowels of a, a big organization and get them to fundamentally change their you know, utility bill assumptions for SoCal versus Connecticut is, is a long slog for a startup that's on a, a you know, ticking clock. Mm-hmm. So we just decided to put our uh, focus and our time more on, on how do we drive down, win on first cost, up the quality spec, up the product spec, and make it a no-brainer sale. Um, like Kevin said, we, we tell people all the time, you're going to get a very beautiful building. You're going to get it in a fraction of the time. Um, and, oh, by the way, you know, it's icing on the cake that your utility bill is going to be lower. One of my favorite stories, people have been here recently, was uh, Microsoft recently uh, had people who operate the data centers now have to pay for the energy for those data centers, kind of the yeah. organizational bifurcation you're talking about. Because before, the IT guys were like, yeah, we'll get the biggest servers we can get. Who cares how much energy it costs? Now they have to pay the bill. They're like, oh, okay, it's a whole different deal. Uh, we're talking about clean energy with a group of uh, from experts. We have Gary Dillabeau, managing partner at the Wesley Group, Anne Han, CEO of Project Frog, and Kevin Serace, the chairman of Zeta Communities. I'm Greg Dalton. Uh, so it takes a long time to do these things. It doesn't scale like software. So Gary Dillabo, is this a place for venture capital for Silicon Valley kind of investing if it's so slow and so difficult as we've been hearing? It, it doesn't feel that way right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I, I think it's been tough for, for the venture community. I haven't been in the venture community very long, but, but it feels like um, you know, given that the sector is a bit out of favor in general, that they're, they're looking at a sector like a subsector like this with even a, you know, a sharper pencil and looking for, you know, show us some success. And there hasn't been a lot of success in the public market or even private companies growing with a lot of scale. So, um, I, I think it's tough for VCs. And you see a lot of firms, like we're, we're a, a small kind of boutique firm and a lot of firms of our ilk are actually having a very difficult time raising money right now. So we're, we're seeing some of those uh, you know, kind of uh, partners, because we look at them as partners, because it's important for us to come together as syndicates to fund these companies. That they're, they're really not getting the money they deserve and they need. So uh, I think it's a very tough time. But I do believe that you know, if you look at the economics, the valuations of companies are coming down right now. And as people are moving away from it, it's a bit countercyclic. But I think now is the time to actually double down. And uh, that's why we're more convicted than ever that this is the right space at the right time. And uh, yeah, you know, we're hoping that, that some of these companies will finally start to break through. And I think we're closer than, than some people realize. I mean, one thing that changed the tide in our fundraising last year at Project Frog was, um, you know, on one hand, we were uh, creating some stickiness with the end users that were going to pull their channel partners along with us. And that was quite helpful. But I think another kind of light bulb moment was when people started to say, it's not about construction. Think of the building as a technology platform. And if Project Frog can figure out how to integrate the most advanced VRF HVAC system, the Lunera light fixtures, the Adura or Enlighted, you know, lighting controls, the, you know, serious windows into that and, and guarantee that type of result, then that all of a sudden becomes a distribution channel to market for all these wonderful materials and technologies in their portfolios that right now has really been struggling. You know, you've got the, the same lighting rep, uh, carrying all your competitors in his back as he goes out and tries to, to sell your light fixtures in. And by the time you go through those messy distribution channels, uh, your margins chopped and changed so much there's nothing left in the end. And so, you know, for us, we fe- we're just using the building as a vehicle, um, as a platform, really. And now you're speaking Silicon Valley's language. Kevin, <clears throat> Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, the, the, the truth of the matter is, is uh, 
the, the space has been challenged with, with solid exits uh, across the clean tech space. And depending on how you define clean tech, 300, 500, 800 companies were funded over sort of a five, six, seven year uh, period. Um, it became it became a little challenging uh, about a year ago um, because the social mobile space has heated up. And when you're a limited partner, it's getting a little technical, but when you're a limited partner in these funds, you you have a choice of, you know, putting your money in a variety of places. And, 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 and it's hard for people in this audience to understand why, you know, a Facebook exit actually competes with, or things like Facebook, actually compete for the same dollars, ultimately, as uh, as green building does or energy efficiency does or or biofuels or, or any of that, but it does. Well, light bulbs might have been a better bet than Facebook, but that's a little <laughs> it, 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 it may be, but, he, but Facebook, even at $30 billion market cap, yeah, is okay. a lot bigger than all of Cleantech put together. So, so the net result is that um, the, the, the nail in the coffin was really Solyndra uh, going under. That was not a huge surprise to a lot of us because hundreds of, of solar deals were funded and only a few will survive, and that's the natural course of things. But it was so big in the news, and people made it a political issue that that was the, sort of the nail in the coffin of going, geez, I'm not investing in anything in clean tech. There's no exits, and I don't see. Now, of course, that's an overstatement, and, and the venture community has overreacted by virtually running from the space, save a few funds. Wesley is an outstanding fund. There's Vantage Point. There's a few people who are still focused on the space, but 95%, 98% of the tech investors have, have abandoned, completely abandoned the space. At Sirius, we grew a company uh, to 420 people, six plants, and, uh, and earlier this year, you know, the investors decided, um, you know, that's uninteresting. We don't care about growth. Peel it all back. And they sold off some plants and did some other things. And, and, uh, and hence, I'm not involved in those decisions. They can make those decisions themselves. But, but basically, a lot of those, some of those investors had already made back their fund on other things. So all serious and 25 other clean tech investments that they had in that fund, all we could do was hurt their returns. Now, this is not bad or good. It just is. It's, you know, they're running a financial game. Um, there's an old story of, you know, in the, in, in, the, in the KP fund that had Google that went public. If you were some other company other than Google, you sort of got abandoned off to the side a little bit because they already returned their fund. But that's the game that you play in venture, and everybody's got to know that. And unfortunately, the clean tech companies take a lot longer than two or three years to get public. They can take 10 or 15, mm-hmm. and, and that's, uh, that's challenging for the venture model. But I agree with Gary. There's going to be some big wins. Not sure where they are, but but he's got some wins in his in his fund for sure. I think Ann's company is doing just amazing work. So there's some wins in this space. And you mentioned fundraising, and one way that uh, companies are getting money is through strategic partners, large uh, incumbent uh, companies. You went with General Electric rather yeah. than fund from the Wesley Group right here. I mean, part I of that- tried to get them, but you know, he was but difficult. Part of that is is a Big partner like General Electric offers you something that just a, a VC fund can't, that there's a path to market and there's, there's scale there. So talk a little bit yeah. about that kind of partner. And, you know, given, you know, they call them strategics, these big corporates, which given I was in one, I didn't know that was our title. And um, I will say as I went out, you know, I was hearing a lot of the, the views of strategics, like, oh, they're good because they can help with some business development along the way, but, boy, they're slow and they, they don't always follow on with the next investment and, um, but here I'm wearing my old kind of corporate hat and thinking, yeah, but I mean, there's that machine there. And if you can get that machine in the door and leverage PR, all the access to their business units, 
Um, I just, you know, for me, it just felt so right. And it, and it made sense for the stage we were at. But I will tell you that I, I knew a lot of people pretty senior in G from my, my former job. And um, it took me a while to convince them this was not a construction company and this was a tech platform. And it wasn't until two big events happened. The first one is is when they found out that their industrial solutions business unit had come to meet us because they want to get GE lighting and control specced into our buildings. So all of a sudden they're like, wait, wait, you've actually got one of our big business units talking to you. And then the second one, which was just pure serendipity, is they needed a building really fast at their Crotonville campus, which is their executive leadership retreat, and they bought a frog. Name so, for, this is the Jack Welch, this legendary is the Jack CEO. Welch, yeah, Jack Welch Leadership Training Center. I'm proud to say it's the first bar we've ever deployed. <laughs> it's got pool tables. It's, it's good looking. There's no doubt about it. And um, But it, it was great. We were able to call the G Venture guys up and say, come on, like, you know, your components are in our buildings, you're buying buildings from us, like, what, do you now see that we really are a technology integrator? Well, and it's an energy efficient bar, and that's, that's right. really, really And that critical. is key, yeah. <laughs> Solar powered so, um, blender, yeah, okay, yeah. so. But, but I will say this, what is exciting is, you know, they, they have big strategic accounts like Kaiser, who are thinking about how do I get our heavy molecular advanced imaging equipment into buildings? It often takes new structures. It's easier to deploy the imaging equipment that costs several million dollars with a building all around it. They need innovation hubs, sales centers to attract people. So, you know, it may not be their core business to deploy buildings, but we've certainly been able to find lots of points of connection. Kevin mentioned earlier that there's, that some of these issues became political, and large machines are often very uh, wary of, of uh, a political controversy. Is that an issue that there's an element out there that says climate change doesn't exist, energy efficiency is un-American? Does that ever play into... Uh, Remember the light bulbs? I mean, the whole incandescent light bulb was banned, the industry was on yeah. it, and then it got rolled back by Congress, which was, yeah. seemed crazy. So is that is a politicization ever an act of issue for these large organizations? Well, I mean, you have to remember that I sat inside a company that gave itself the logo of a flower and called itself Beyond Petroleum. And then I built green gas stations, which in itself is, you know, a paradox. So I, my whole thing is, is I think that you just, I, I don't like it that um, conversation about climate change, when I'm used to serving real consumers who have real financial concerns, uh, making it polarizing. And so we do the same thing when we're working with big B2B customers. We try to be sensitive that every decision is an intersection of economics, design, um, and for us, manufacturing. And inside economics, one big piece of that is energy. And, and, you know, so, so far we haven't found it to be overly political, but we try to be smart about how we interact with these companies and really understand it's one thing that they've made an announcement about a carbon footprint reduction. It's very different how that message actually changes the operational decisions. And so we, we feel like we have such a compelling value prop on on speed and cost and other factors that, that you know, we don't have to push it in, as we spoke about earlier today. We don't have to force it in so heavily. So you don't talk about climate change. You might talk about carbon. I mean, carbon accounting is starting. A lot of companies are starting to measure their car, measure their carbon footprint. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's now it's gradually becoming uh, an issue with the Securities Exchange Commission mm-hmm. to disclose carbon yeah. risk. So that is that a factor? Well, what we do is we we show people how much reduction we're offering them. Uh, for example, on the SoCal Kaiser building I spoke about earlier, if you use their model of how they calculate um, energy payback, it's a 25-year um, NPV. It equates to about an $11 a square foot reduction for them on that specific site. We give them that information. We share it openly, We just, but we don't politicize it. 
Yeah, and I think that's where the world is today. <clears throat> Again, you're going to sell on economics. You're going to sell on other value points. By the way, isn't it great that you'll also be able to claim this kind of energy reduction, this kind of footprint reduction, et cetera? And those are all positives, but they really cannot be upfront. Number two, you get yourself in, a, in big political heat if you start saying, buy this because of climate change. I, you know what? That's not of interest to most CEOs and most anything today, unfortunately. Carbon accounting is a different, though. I mean, well, yeah, carbon there's accounting. Going price, there's going to be a price on carbon, and yeah. you're, you're going to buy a building that's going to be around for 30 years. You yeah. need to think about the cost. Yeah, the I mean, cost. it's it's hard to find too many uh, CEOs of Fortune 1000 that think there will really be a price on 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 carbon, but but because of the SEC uh, mandates are too strong of a word, but recommendations. Um, most Fortune 1000 are, are uh, publishing some level of their carbon footprint and, and then trying to show some, some reduction. And, and clearly, uh, for most of them, it's either manufacturing, transportation, or, or the buildings. But for most of them, it's their buildings that are using up uh, the majority of their uh, – uh, or generating the majority of their carbon. Footprint. More than their supply chains. You hear so much about supply chains, it's actually the buildings that are – It's often have. the buildings. Uh, let's look to the future. Where is this going? I mean, we you, obviously both of you believe, Gary, uh, sorry, uh, Kevin and Ann believe that modular construction is going. Let's look at the future. Where is this going to go? You, we talked about sort of a fad or a bubble of, of investing, investors pulling back. Is that going to come back? Well, let's talk about the future, and then we'll go to the audience questions. Yeah, you know, I, I think that, that, that Kevin and Anna have said it correctly. I mean, there, you know, modular construction is, is something that's done, you know, uh, a lot of it that's being done in Europe. And I think the Europeans are much more sensitive to this whole issue. And so I, I think that we're slowly but surely, surely learning from them. And you'll see that continue to, to, to you know, work its way into the marketplace. But, uh, you know, the, the thing, I, I think we need some kind of big momentum shift. And to me, I, and I'm, I don't think we've done a great job of telling the story, but it's really around productivity. When you look at companies like Apple and Google, they have wonderful facilities. They recognize that they want to bring these highly paid people into these environments and make sure that they are as productive and as healthy and as feel as good as they can. Well, there's the New York Times story about how low the people in Apple stores are paid. They're, they make less than, than Home Depot. You're not saying they're highly paid. The yeah, engineers are highly paid. Well, I'm actually talking more about the, the corporate offices, uh-huh. you know, office buildings. When, when you, these guys are really on the cutting edge. They're the ones who consume a lot of these new products. And unfortunately, uh, they, they are these leaders, but it's hard to scale a new technology. You can get into Google, but you can't get it into AMD. And so I, what, I'm, what I'm hoping is that when you actually look at the cost of energy and operating expenses, it is such a small number in comparison to the HR budget that uh, that's where I think that the fight has to be fought. The ROI is actually, you know, as Kevin said, getting down to a year is, is relatively difficult for some of these technologies. But when you look at it, making these people more productive, you know, these things pay off in, in three or four months in, in some circumstances. There's, there's an old adage that I'll give you real quickly, exactly what Gary said. Energy cost, you guys will use this in the future, it's, it, it's very interesting. Energy cost in a building like this might be a couple bucks a square foot. So just for round numbers, we'll call it $2 a, a square foot. Um, you know, the, the rent might be $20 a square foot. I wish. Yeah. Well, it depends on where you are. But maybe not this building. But for, you know, sort of average across America. The, so 10 times, okay? The uh, cost of your people, the actual salary cost, may be a couple hundred bucks a square foot, depending on the density and this mm-hmm. and that. But the productivity and the output of what your people do might be $2,000 a square foot. So, in fact, all you really want to swing, if you really want to convince people to buy your product, is that $2,000 number. Because you swing that just 1%, and it eats up all of the energy cost, you know, times 10. 
So uh, that's the swing. The swing is in the people's productivity. So if the lighting is better and it feels better and the air is better and there's no outgassing and you're using less energy and everything just feels more natural and you're a little more productive, people stay three minutes more a day. It pays for as if all the energy was free. And in fact, you've reduced the energy too. So that reduction of energy swinging those other numbers is, is very, very big for a corporation. We're going to put a microphone out here and invite your participation. Um, again, if you're on this side, please, the line starts over there, and we invite you to come up with uh, one one-part question or comment. <laughs> and I'm here for you to uh, keep it brief, and this is often uh, the most engaging part, so <clears throat> please come on up. Let's have our first audience question. Welcome. Uh, first, I, I'm, I'm big fans of uh, Zeta and uh, Project Frog. Um, since you said that uh, y'all are focusing on low energy and zero energy, and then now you don't really have the waste that's there anymore, how are you incorporating digital fabrication into your prefab so that way you're leveraging, as, as, as Gary said, these technologies that have been developed in these other countries? How are you bringing that here to help construction and the actual process be less wasteful in your prefab? Well, that, that's really kind of um, core to us. It's probably one of the things that, you know, as you said, some of the things that we don't get messages out well enough is we consider ourselves just as much manufacturers as we do um, designers or, or helping people make a, a smart building decision. Um, a proof point is, is that yesterday we had 36 um, the top executives globally from Boeing in our office from the military division. It's one-fourth of all of Boeing's revenues because they wanted to come learn from us the frog approach about the intersection of design, manufacturing, and kind of smart economics. Uh, we only have 34 people in our whole firm. <laughs> so, uh, you know, very humbling day. But, you know, for us, we really believe in, in the importance of our manufacturing partners and people who use very heavy automated processes and, and to your point, leverage the digital fabrication methodologies because, um, you know, for us, it is about repetition. Repetition is a core tenet of what we do. And if we can design a very smart, flexible, repetitive kit of parts, we can drive up the quality and drive down the cost. And it's only really through that that we can. So for us, uh, it's really the labor that still needs to be involved, the manual labor on a job site, we want to keep it there and keep those jobs there. And it's really about all the stuff that's smarter to do in a very high-precision fabrication environment. We do that. And by relying on our manufacturing partners, not only do they give us the assurance they can scale with us and have all the good quality controls of a sophisticated company, but it also means that as this is an industry that's moving so fast, we can continually high-grade and flex the kit with the advancements in technology. Ann Hand is CEO of Project Frog, a, a modular construction company. And uh, are the fabrication, the factories in the U.S., are they going to be in China? Uh, right now, our factories are in Canada or United States. Um, we have really, for mostly because of, of being venture-backed, tried to really say, look, there's enough business to be done in the U.S., even in a tough economy. Uh, we have a compelling value prop. Let's stay focused in the U.S., and let's obviously have North America-based manufacturing partners. I will say that we've just won an international job that I tried very hard to lose because I was worried about it being a distraction. But we'll have our um, first international frog is the Nelson Mandela Cultural Arts Center in Joburg. And will that be made in Africa or will it be made here? It will, because it's the first deployment and it's actually a part of a wider program to deploy healthcare clinics and education facilities, 
We just need to make sure that first very small, humble building gets done right. So we're going to do it with our, our kind of trusted manufacturers. And then as we build the case for expansion there, explore what aspects of the system we can actually bring jobs to, to Africa. In the so process. actually manufacturing jobs in the U.S. and exporting. That's very interesting. Let's have our next audience question, please. Welcome. Hi, I'm Jim Caldwell from E3 Regenesis and U.S. China Green Energy Council. Um, I notice a paradox in the discussion uh, about even people who are doing green and clean and more efficient are saying it costs more money to do that, and yet Frogtech and Zeta are building buildings that are 30% cheaper. Hmm. Um, so how do we solve that paradox? Yeah. I mean, system integration, of course, but... And there, there is a green problem. Marketing, right. Marketing. Yeah. A lot of other uh, executives from other industries have been up here, and there's a green premium, and they say how people don't want to pay. Maybe you're, you're, you're sort of a, a rare example of a real, true, green, lower-cost alternative. But. Well, look, I mean, it depends on, on, on what you're comparing. It is true that uh, both Zeta and Frog are producing a, a world-class, uh, low-energy product at a lower price. Um, but what we're not comparing is could you make that product even lower price by using more energy? Well, you know, or yeah. yes, but or, that's not what we're offering. It's not what she's offering. Or worse materials. Or worse materials. Absolutely. It's not what we're offering. It's not part of the offering. So, so you know, we're a little bit trying to compare apples to oranges, but we're still delivering a, a, an, an incredible value to our customers, our GCs, our, our, our builders. But I'll give you a great example. You know, at Sirius, we made high R-value glass, and and um, regular dual-pane glass in a large uh, a high-rise might be 6 or $7 a, a square foot, and ours might be 8 or $9 a square foot. Um, and, and so it increased the, you know, the building cost by 0.5% or some number like that, less than 1%. We would give them their money back in a year and a half across that 3 or $4 difference, and yet we'd be value-engineered out over 80% of the time. Over 80% of the time, value engineered out because, oh, well, that's too expensive. And part of it was they were given a budget from a bank that said, we're going to give you $65 million to build your building. And they're at 78. They start pulling out everything. By the way, the thing that's the last to go is the, is the marble or the granite in the lobby. <laughs> that's not going to go. But you start pulling out everything else. And you know, my friend from Gensler is here, and she's laughing because she knows I'm right. I mean, she designs it amazing things to save energy, drive the thing to net zero, and it's the first thing it gets value engineered uh, out, uh, which which is uh, which is terrible. So, uh, or we call it value elimination, because uh, that's in essence what it is. So there are some costs to doing this, but but uh, but on the other hand, when done right, you know we're offering at Zeta and and at Frog a, a lower cost, better built, higher quality, faster uh, time to finish, and better use of your money product than you could get anywhere else. If you're just joining us, you can listen to this and other podcasts of Climate One in the iTunes Store. Let's have our next audience question. Yes, Gary, Malaysia. Sounds like America has a lot of growing up to do. Uh, I recently toured a building on Larkin and Golden Gate, a PUC building that's probably the most sustainable building in the city of San Francisco. Have any of you toured that building? No. I suggest you do that. Thanks. Pushing the edge. Let's have our next audience question. Hello. Joshua Kagan from the Carbon War Room. Um, energy efficiency has been the low-hanging fruit for 30 years, and yet adoption has been minuscule compared to its potential. How much of this lack of adoption is because of access, lack of access to finance, and what do you think the opportunities are for energy savings agreements and PACE commercial and on-bill repayment to break that? 
Uh, let me let me start with an answer. Um, about uh, uh, almost two years ago, a year and a half ago, uh, we launched at Sirius. We recognized the number one uh, issue with getting uh, efficiency uh, in uh, the hands of more building owner operators was uh, a lack of ability to finance it. The, the great example is solar. You know, solar didn't take off in a lot of markets until the PPA, the Power Purchase Agreement, worked. And once that worked, basically you could get solar, in essence, for free because you'd be paying just for the electricity and it was about the same cost or less, and so you didn't even worry about the cost of solar. Um, to, to the extent we can offer PACE or other kinds of efficiency service agreements, um, that's the same plan, which is you get all your efficiency upgrades in your building for free, we carry the cost, and now you pay us your electricity bill, and we make the money on the spread and pay back the, the cost of doing those things. So we offered that uh, at, at Sirius. Very successful program. Huge pipeline. Uh, already booked customers very, very well. It was not to the liking of our investors who killed the program. So it also has to be loved by your investors as well as as the marketplace. Uh, and why didn't they like it? Well, you know, you're taking on a lot of risk as a company. What you're really doing is taking that debt on your books, okay, instead of all those companies taking it on. So you end up potentially with, you know, several billion dollars of debt on your books. Now it's being paid for by these monthly payments. But if you're not accustomed to investing in a business that has a $2 billion debt line, you know, you might you might not like that sitting on the board. You might say, "Can they come after me?" This is, gee, I don't have that kind of money. Well, well, some of my board members did, but some don't. And and so um, so I can see how it's challenging and scary. I, Gary, I think you've got a company that's doing a little bit of this, right? Yeah. 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 Uh, but that's I mean, the segue. <laughs> <laughs> Trying to. Good luck, Gary. Yeah. <laughs> You know, it, it, well, actually, I'm, I'm going to kind of veer a little bit away from the financing because, you know, I, I think, again, uh, sometimes we get caught in the weeds. And, and I, I do think that, that financing can unleash some of these activities, but it just hasn't worked as well as we'd like. I mean, well, what I want people to start to realize is when you think about this phone, you know, a few years ago, this was just a communication device. And this has changed so much. You know, we do so much more with this device now. And I try to talk to facilities managers and building owners to help, help them realize that these buildings can be so much more than just a building. And once you start to make these digital platforms, like Ann talks about, you know, whether it's the lighting or it's the windows. I mean, I was driving in today and I see some beautiful new structures here. And you look at the 20th story and the blinds are all closed because the, wind, the, the sun is hitting those buildings. And that beautiful view uh, is now lost because of the heat and of the glare. You know, those are things that can be overcome if you have a window that's smart and starts to react to that, starts to talk to the lights, starts to talk to the HVAC system. These are not all that complex. I mean, this is far more complex than that. But I, I think a, a lot of people are just unfamiliar with that. And so, therefore, bringing money and financing to the marketplace just hasn't happened as a uh, as comfortably and as confidently as we like to see. Um, but we've got to shift people to productivity and health. And this is a digital platform that we can really take advantage of. And we couldn't do that three or four years ago. Now we can. I do know that efficiency financing is a platform of, of the carbon war room. So thank you for bringing it up. I know yeah. it's a big push that you're doing, and I, we thank you for doing that. It's excellent. But what's the big obstacle for buildings to be seen as technology platforms like the, like the iPhone you're, you're holding? Is it just that building owners, it's, is it, it's a cultural, behavioral, we've been talking a lot about the thinking change? Mindset and budget. It, yeah, budget, I, I, yeah. Budget, budget, budget? Well, you, know, you think about a lot of facilities, teams, or asset managers, they are not engineers. 
you know, sometimes they're called building engineers, but they truly aren't engineers. And when you look at these things, they're actually very sophisticated when you want to optimize performance. And so I think you need a different person in some of these seats to help ownership uh, realize, because I think a lot of the general contractors now really do believe this is the right direction to go, but the value engineering starts to hurt them at the end of a project, and that gets pulled out. And once you start to pull one or two of the threads on this, everything crumbles, because the windows do need to talk to the lights, and the lights do need to talk to the HVAC system. And when, when people are out, the occupancy sensors need to say, hey, don't turn that floor on, and when the janitors are in, the building needs to run differently. It really isn't that difficult. It's just different. Yeah. And so we have to get people more comfortable in, in that environment. And that's why it's been so, you know, core to our value prop about the notion that we don't allow. We we understand the relationship of all those components. And, you know, once we've, we've locked in on the price, we don't change order our way out of a job. We lock into a price and schedule, and then we guarantee that result. I think it's it's critical for us. I would just say, too, to, to add a bit on some of the um, – the financing front as it relates. I mean, one of probably the most freeing things for us at Frog when I started was the fact that with most of the the regulation that came about in the subsidies, none of it really applied to new construction. Um, At first, it was a little bit of a crushing blow, but then it just became like, let's just get on with it. We have got to make this product cost the same or less. And in a way, it stopped us building up a business model that was going to become too reliant on on kind of alternative money. So in a strange way, I can look back now, even though it hurt at the time, and say it just freed us up to get on with how do we make this a really efficient business and an efficient offer. And new construction uh, is really separate the way it's handled from retrofitted buildings. You can argue with the 5 million commercial buildings already in the U.S. that, 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 you know, the retrofit opportunity, which is really what – he brought up from the carbon, Joshua brought up yeah. from the carbon war room, is a huge opportunity. And it's that one that's been a challenge to tap because of lack of, I mean, smart windows are an excellent example. He, uh, Gary's an investor in a great smart window company. You know, the challenge is, does someone have a budget to put in a 10, 20, 30, 40, $50 square foot window when they could just put in nothing and just leave it or put in blinds for $2 a square foot. I mean, these are the budget issues there. When we do new construction, they've arranged for financing. However, they got it from the city, the state, the Fed, the bank. It's not our problem. Of course, there's already financing uh, uh, for, you know, put, put, to put that up. But in a building like this, if you come in and say, I want to change all your windows, I want to change your glass, I want to change your lighting, I want to change this, I want to change that, they go, listen, the facility guy goes, I haven't had a new budget in 28 (laughs) years. My budget is barely enough to change the light bulbs that go out, and I've just been told i got to leave 5% of them out for at least two months because blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's really tight budgets. So it's a whole different paradigm to deal with. And I, I just build on that a bit. Like, I never tell my customers, you're buying a digital platform. I mean, it's kind of like we really shouldn't try to get, you know, it, we, this is what we believe and we feel is happening. But, um, you know, if I look at some of the early sales pitches that I did at Frog a few years back, I mean, you'd feel like you needed three PhDs to work through those slides. I didn't even understand what half of them said. And so we just also try, uh, started to adopt uh, the attitude of let's not outsmart them here. You know, give them a great offer. Just give them a great offer. If they are a real kind of visionary that that is going to secretly think that it is a digital platform, great. But I still bet you he's not running through the hallways of Kaiser Permanente saying buildings are digital platforms. He, you know, his career path would stop. He's so, saying I saved thirty dollars a square foot. That's right. And saved energy. That's right. Let's have our next audience question. Welcome. So I have a 
manufacturing question for you. Um, I come from the world of solar, where somehow we have moved from China is burning way too much coal to China is making way too many solar panels. Yeah. <laughs> They're also installing a lot of solar panels, yeah. too. Um, and I wanted to know, when you look five, ten years ahead, where do you see manufacturing? Do you, I mean, people are probably giving you lots of positive reinforcement right now for doing a lot of manufacturing in the U.S. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Sirius had six factories in the U.S., none in China, and we and Zeta has one factory in the U.S. and several factory partners in the U.S., so all of that is 100% U.S. Uh, there's some components that get made around the world in a, in a variety of places, but our, our factories in the U.S. One thing about the built environment that's interesting is most of the things, certainly, that both of us make, they have to be made reasonably close to where they're going to be used. That's right. Hundreds of miles, maybe, but you don't put this stuff on ships. The, the cost would be ridiculous. And so um, the good news is that we certainly can make things in the U.S. that are large and heavy because the transport costs would just be overwhelming, and we'll continue to make those. By the way, there is a little bit of other good news is that in the last year or two, more manufacturing has been coming back to the U.S. across the board, and, and it is, uh, it's a little platform of mine, but it is absolutely crucial that we bring manufacturing in all of these areas back to the U.S. Um, lastly, of course, Arizona and a few other uh, uh, areas in, in Canada was another one that had a number of rules about solar panels uh, being made in the country in order to get the rebate dollars. Mm-hmm. You don't get the rebate if they're not made here. Arizona did that for a while, etc. And that actually attracted even China manufacturers to build factories in the U.S. <laughs> so it shows you with some very simple uh, rules and regulations, you can attract people from all over the world to build their factories here and employ our underemployed population in this country. Reshoring is something we'll be talking about more. Let's have our next audience question. Hi, thank you very much. Uh, this is Dave Mascandrea Jacobs. I'd like to get the biggest success and biggest failure and what we can do about those um, in terms of takeaways. Well, yeah, I'll give you one. A, uh, one of our uh, portfolio companies was Tesla. And that, that's not part of the built environment, but, but, but I think it was taking in the whole model and, and changing it. But you didn't sacrifice design. I think what Elon Musk did is like, I can make an electric car that looks beautiful, that, that people want to drive as opposed to a box with four wheels. Um, most cars to me, electric cars look terrible. But we, we thought that was a really important sector. And, and we see similar, and, and he's created a digital platform. When you go inside that car, it, it's a really a fascinating place to be from what they've done. Um, I think buildings you know, need to kind of follow a, a similar path. And the reality is we just don't have any, and listen, what, what I see right now, any wonderful stories to tell. I think there's some momentum being built. You know, like the, the company that, that Kevin and I were referring to, it's a company called Solodyne. Uh, they're building a 300,000 square foot facility in Mississippi right now. Um, but if they're able to really do what, what, what serious windows have been doing is helping to react to the environment and make smarter decisions within a building envelope, that's a company that could be worth billions of dollars. It really could change the, the envelope. And when you think about how you optimize performance in a building, the very first part of the fight has to start with the environment. So if you can work with the sun or the wind or the clouds and you can make smart decisions there, everything inside of that becomes much easier. But you look at weather forecasters. They can't you know, tell you what's going to happen tomorrow. So a building engineer, there's no way that they're going to be able to work you know, real time with that kind of information. So we need to start allowing technology to do it for them and really making it easy to use. We've got just a few minutes left, but uh, let's get a failure. You guys yeah, are not yeah. getting off the hook no, about I, a failure. I, I, yeah, uh, biggest failure, I'd say, is I feel like I lost about a year of the three years um, trying too hard to push customers into the original frog system, kind of our frog classic building. 
um, shoehorn in their program, not understand the importance of flexibility for the for the architect and the end user. Um, and also during that time, I think I also put in a box um, a lot of my big corporate training. I kept thinking, oh, you know, don't bring that stuff here. This is a startup. You're going to stamp up out, out innovation. And and you know what? Just smart business is smart business. So I think that was a failure. I'd say biggest success is maybe because of that valley we went through and that that pain. By the time the money came in, we actually really had listened enough to what customers wanted. And um, so we got our biggest PO of our history. It was more than our whole revenues last year um, in May. And then we today submit a proposal for, for a purchase order that's twice that. So, you know, I almost feel like we had to go through that uh, that valley to, to know what was right. Failure, you know success by having some failure, Kevin? So, yeah, uh, I mean, clearly at, at Sirius, we uh, we did 70,000 projects, both residential and commercial Empire State Building, New York Stock Exchange, and, you know, lots and lots and lots of other buildings that a lot of people, even some in this room, were involved in. Um, clearly the biggest uh, success, I think, as a company in the built environment. It took nine years to build it. Um, like I said, 420 employees, six plants, uh, 63% CAGR, so a company annual growth rate. So there's a very, a very successful by all stretches of the imagination, very close to break even. And yet that um, run wasn't fast enough to get to an exit that, uh, that some of the investors needed to get to. And, um, and so in the end, to the investors, it was a complete failure. Uh, even though the company is an absolute success, and many of you in this room, probably most of you have used our products, and, you know, brand-wise, technology-wise, 52 patent, you, there's nothing you could say that was wrong, and yet it wasn't good enough for the venture community to get the returns that they needed in the time frame that they needed it. And so, in a way, you know, it, you miss a window, and that window closed about a year ago, at least in the public offering space. Maybe it'll open again. It's pretty challenging. VCs, bar high. Let's go to our next audience question. We have to wrap it up pretty quickly. Yes, sir. Uh, Arthur Young, uh, Communication Management and the Climate Reality Project. Thank you all for contributing your time today. Um, Abraham Lincoln said, uh, if you call a tail a leg, how many legs does a dog have? Five? No, calling a tail a leg, don't make it a leg. My frustration in hearing you talk today is that, Kevin, you're talking dollars and cents. You're talking um, selling a project whole. You're talking about um, uh, uh, comparing a, a building to a platform. I think our real problem is behavior change. It's not about financing. We have a very hard time convincing people to do what's in their best interest because we don't seem to we haven't developed the language and i'm curious if you can talk about um direct the conversation to changing behavior more than the dollars and cents sensibility of what all of us in this room know is the most sensible thing to do yeah no i'll jump on that um i think what we've tried to do is just practically understand that the um getting a building involves a lot of stakeholders. And so when you hear me talking about a bundled solution, I'm talking to a handful of stakeholders that are very important in that initial transaction. But, you know, for Frog, you know, people will say, my God, why is your name Project Frog? That's a little unconventional. Um, and, and we embrace it because we feel like we are trying to define a new category of building. We are trying to create brand equity in an industry that doesn't have it. We pride ourselves on the fact that our customers call us froggers. They call their buildings frogs. And, they, and the building does live with them. We provide living dashboards inside the building, curriculum guides. We want them to understand the choices we made. Um, what are the smart strategies they can employ in the building on kind of extremely hot or cold days? So I think you're right. We're, we're not running away from that piece. 
but I think the reality is it's such a fragmented set of stakeholders who are involved in the whole life cycle of a building that what we've been focusing on mostly here today is that initial transaction, which unfortunately tends to be more economic than behavioral. Um, but if we can then create the lock-in with the users, we feel like it will mean that the doctors at Kaiser will say, I want that building again because I have more daylight. And I have I get daylight in my exam room pods and what have you. We've got to wrap this up. But Gary Gillibo on the human dimension. Oh, well, I was just going to say you, you real quickly that you know, the, the reason that you hear us talking about three or four different messages here, and I think that's one of the biggest failures, is we haven't learned how to market this sector correctly. Mm-hmm. But when you're talking to a procurement person, doesn't give a crap about productivity. Doesn't, you know, his, his, his or her bonus is going to be based upon how cheap they get that price to. So we have to market to, to numerous you know, folks, and so we have to take these different messages into different places. The boardroom is one place. The procurement department is completely different. So those are some things that we struggle with. So integrated thinking within large organizations that are making this. Exactly. Um, we're at the end of our time. Our thanks to Gary Dillabo, managing partner at the Wesley Group, and Ann Han, CEO of Project Frog, and Kevin Serace, founder of Cirrus Energy. I'm Greg Dalton. Thank you all for coming. Again, you can listen to a podcast of this and other Climate One programs in the iTunes store. Thanks for coming today. Thank you. <clears throat>